0: Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Star, Cells, and God. This is the podcast where we discuss new discoveries that are happening at the frontiers of science and describe how these discoveries provide evidence for God's existence, uh, the Bible's reliability, and even how these discoveries point to God's nature and God's character. Uh, my name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which is the sponsor of of this podcast. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, I invite you to go to our website, reasons.org. Also, you can follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. And then finally, if you're watching this, make sure you go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, and subscribe. There you can gain access to all kinds of great video content that explore a wide range of questions relating to science in the Christian faith. And then finally, make sure if you're at our website that you use the notification button so that you can be alerted when the next episode of Star Cells, and God drops. I'm joined in studio today by Dr. Jeff Zwerink, who is part of the team here at Reasons to Believe, an astrophysicist and also a Christian apologist as well. And Jeff and I are going to talk about uh, two recently reported discoveries in science, I guess, and, and what those discoveries mean for the Christian faith. So, Jeff, right. uh,
1: take it away. Well, I appreciate that. And I was, you know, I was thinking about how to introduce this because really what I'm going to talk about is infinity. And I, I can't say it's a new discovery, but I, this is just a topic, honestly, that's fascinated me for a long time. I remember when I was in uh, school, high school, actually, and uh, you know, your, your high school trajectory and mine were different. To say the least, from what I've heard of your description of it, but one of the books I read when I was in high school was a book called Gödel, Escher, Bach, mm-hmm. and it's this fascinating book that uh, written by Douglas Hofstadter, and it's actually about um, it's actually a kind of a, a book about mathematics, if you will. But it what it works at, or the the tie to it was Gödel, Escher, and Bach all did these works which were self-referential. And so, with Escher, if you remember his paintings, you know right. they have one arm that's painting, another arm that's painting, and so yeah, it's right. or these staircases where you're always going up, but never, you know, you're always making these loops of so these self-referential systems. And what I'd never, I, I didn't, I, I could see the artistic part of that. What I didn't ever get with uh, Bach, but what it, what they were describing in there is Bach had that same capacity to do with music. It's mm. like. And I forget exactly what was going on, but it's kind of always where the the tempo or the, the 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 tone was always going up, but you'd find yourself back at the same place, and it was just this never-ending cycle. And so that kind of introduced this idea of infinity, which is what Go or Godel was uh, came into that because he had these self-referential statements become very problematic when you're trying to figure out the completeness of mm-hmm. mathematical systems, if you will. But all that to say is you got this discussion of infinity in there and, uh, you know, it comes up in Zeno's paradox of, you know, you know, can you ever move anywhere? Well, you know, before you can move there, you got to move halfway and you got to move half of that and half of that. And so these infinities show up. And I've always just been fascinated by this. In fact, when I was a a senior in high school, I took a, a math analysis class. And so I had to do a research project and my research project was on infinities and they just behave bizarrely. So fast forward now 25, 30 years from there, as I'm interacting with various things that you know I run into particularly philosophic uh, philosophers, where I think I first noticed it primarily when you talk about uh, inflation, and the idea behind one of the ideas behind inflation is that our universe is infinite, and whether it's spatially infinite or temporally infinite. And, and every time I would bring that up, I would invariably get, somebody goes, well, it's just a potential infinity, not an actual infinity, right? And so, yeah, you know, I would think about that. And it's like, okay, you know, given this, yeah, that's probably true. Because there's this idea that actual infinites cannot exist. And I've always wondered about that statement, and I've chafed at it a little bit, if I'm honest, because um, ask the question, why not? And so what I wanted to do today was just talk about one of the objections, why people say, oh, actual infinites cannot exist. And the reason being, or the, the the logic being, that when you deal with infinites, you le- it leads to absurdities, and absurdities are, philosoph- you know, when you get absurdities, that's saying, okay, philosophically, that's one way of showing, okay, this right. is not a good idea. Right. And so uh, the, the context for these discussions usually play out in terms of Hilbert's Hotel. So if you uh, bring up the slide there, and so this is uh, to set the background for it, you've got Hilbert's Hotel. This is an infinite hotel, so it has yeah. no bound in terms of its numbers, uh, room number one up to you know un- unbounded, and it's all the rooms are filled. And so you've got a group of people come in, say a group of five people come in, and they say, hey, we'd each like a room. Can we do that? And the question is, can you do that? And it turns out the answer is yes, because all you have to do is you say, all right, you tell everybody, move to the room five larger than where you are. So one moves to six, two moves to seven. Everybody has a room to move to. Everybody that's in one room has only one room they get mapped to. And now you have five open rooms. And so you can take infinite, add five to it, and you do fine. And you can even do more more fancy things of this. Say, rather than just have a group of five, that's kind of trivial to deal with. What if you have an infinite group of people show up? Can you deal with it? And you think, well, No, that can't be because you're already full, you know, as full Mm -hmm. as it can be. Well, it turns out you just say, all right, instead of having everybody move five rooms up, say, move to the room twice as large as yours. So one goes to two, two goes to four, three goes to six. Everybody has a room they can move to. Everybody only has one room. You know, it's it's a one-to-one mapping. And at the end of that, you now have all the odd numbers, odd-numbered rooms available. There's an infinite number of odd-numbered odd, room, odd numbered rooms, so you can accommodate mm-hmm. an infinite number of guests. And it turns out you can continue this process of infinite bus loads uh, or, you know, infinite trams of infinite buses. And it turns out you, there's a straightforward way of mathematically mapping and saying, here, everybody does this. And there's always room to accommodate that. And so this is, you can see the strange nature of infinity that shows up, or right. that, that shows up. But well, what's often argued is you know, you say, okay, flip that around. You say, All right, you've got an infinite number. If I take away five, I end up with infinite. Okay, fine and dandy there. But if I take away an infinite number, I can take away an infinite number so that infinity minus infinity is five. Or I can take away an infinite number so that infinite minus infinity is an infinite number, which leads to an absurdity or a contradiction, if you will. And so if you go to the next slide, you know, so if you start doing arithmetic with this, addition is pretty straightforward. You know, we talked about that. You know, you can take if A and B and C are all... uh, finite numbers, a plus b equals c, no problem. If you got infinite numbers, you take an infinite number, you add a finite to it, it's still infinite. If you take an infinite, you add an infinite to it, it's still infinite. Mm-hmm. So everything's well behaved. Right. But now you start talking about subtraction, right. and, you know, a, a minus b equals c, fine, you're dealing with finites. You got uh, infinite minus a finite, that's still infinite, we're fine so far. But now you've got this scenario where infinite minus infinite is it five? Is it infinite? You know, it's it's absurd. You just you just can't do these things. Yeah. And so the solution is you just say, all right, subtraction is not well defined for infinite. So we don't, you can't do subtraction with infinites. And I'm curious, now, how well, do you respond to that?
0: Well, that's interesting because not that I'm you know a mathematical expert, but I always understood that addition and subtraction are, in a sense, the same operation. Mm -hmm. So with a subtraction, what you're really doing is you're adding a negative number Mm -hmm. to a a positive number, let's say, and Mm -hmm. that, in effect, is subtraction. Or multiplication and division are, in effect, the same operations. Right. Right. And so I would argue that if you're able to handle infinites through addition, you're just adding a negative number Mm -hmm. to that, and, and that shouldn't create absurdities. But it does. Right.
1: So, so no, I, 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 your, your description mirrors my understanding of mathematics. And that's part of the, the thing here. It's like, okay, addition seems to be fine. But the moment you start talking about subtraction, you get these absurdities. And so that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons say, okay, actual infinites cannot exist. Mm. As far as mathematicians, they come along and they say, okay, Subtraction with infinites is just not a legitimate operation. It's not a well defined operation. You don't get to do that. So the absurdities go away because we say it's not a well defined operation. Does that trouble you?
0: Yeah, it seems arbitrary.
1: Seems arbitrary. <clears throat> I agree with you. So let me, let me, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, go on to the next slide. I'm going to do this. Something that was shown to me a long time ago, and I've always found fascinating. So we're going to take A and B, and right. you, know, you could put it in more precise mathematical terms, that for every A that is not equal to zero, you can find a B which is not equal to zero, such that A equals B. Fine and dandy. Nothing going on there. Right. You can multiply, as long as you do it to one side of the equation, you can do it to other. So multiply both sides by B, you get A squared, or sorry... And I did that wrong. Anyway, you multiply both sides by A. You get A squared is equal to AB. Fine and dandy. Right. Uh, now you can subtract B squared from both sides. So you get A squared minus B squared on one side, mm-hmm. AB minus B squared. You can factor those. A squared minus B squared is the difference of two squared. So that's the sum of one times the difference of the other. So it's A minus B times A plus B. You've got a, a B that you can factor out. So you get B times A minus B. Then you can just simplify, dividing out common factors, and you get a plus b is equal to b. But we know that a is equal to b, so that's b is equal to b plus b is equal to b, or two b is equal to b. And because b is not zero, yeah. divide it out, you get two equals one. Right. How do you respond to that? <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. I know, I All realize right. that. <clears throat> you know, there's something wrong there.
0: Yes, there is something wrong.
1: And I will tell you what's wrong, is that there is a quantity that we are completely comfortable with that we define multiplication by, but we say division is not a well-defined operation. And what is that number? Infinity. No, zero.
0: Oh, zero, right. You can
1: multiply anything by zero, that's fine, but when you divide by zero, you get... Right. Undefined stuff. Right. So, and I will tell you that reduce equation to simplest form, you're dividing by what? Zero. No. Look, well, look up there. You're dividing by A minus B, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. What's
1: A minus B? Zero. Because A and B are A is equal to B. Right. My point in bringing this up is that we don't go along, you know, there's this reciprocal relationship between multiplication and division, right. just like between addition and subtraction. But yet from the moment you were able to think about it, every teacher said you don't get to divide by zero because it's a not well-defined operation, even though math multiplication is well-defined. Do you see the parallel here with what I'm talking about with infinity? So they go along and they say, okay, addition Mm -hmm. is a well-defined operation among infinites, but subtraction is not. Yes. And we do the same thing with zero. We say multiplication is a well-defined operation right. and subtraction isn't. Or and, sorry, and division isn't.
0: And so we don't say that there is a potential zero. There is an actual zero.
1: Yeah, we don't say, well, we're we're not gonna deal with actual zeros. We say, okay, the mathematics says this is the way they behave and this is what's a defined and not defined operation. And as a result, we're and we're perfectly comfortable with actual zeros existing. Yeah. I just the whole reason I bring this up, and I I, I don't want to say it's a campaign, but I have this long-standing question in my mind: Could God create our universe spatially infinite? Mm-hmm. If actual infinities cannot exist, that it's logically incoherent, then the answer is no. But yet I see a lot of things about what God does. You know that the our time, you know, the eternal state is eternal. It's it has no right. end. But yet God is fully aware of everything in there. So there's it seems like there's some aspect to where there's actual infinite, actual infinite actual infinites exist somewhere in there. And at least it's not incoherent for God. Mm -hmm. And so this to me, you know, as I was talking with Ken, he goes, well, you get these absurdities or these contradictions, because when you subtract infinite from infinite, sometimes you get five, sometimes you get, or you get finite, sometimes you get infinite. You get these contradictions. This to me removes the contradictions. Right. So unless we're going to say, "Ooh, actual zeros don't exist," we at least cannot use these absurdities to right. say they don't exist. Because by the same by the same logic, we said, "Ooh, zero—it's well defined for multiplication, not for division. Right. Infinites well defined for addition, not for subtraction." So if you're getting your absurdities or contradictions through subtraction, it's because you're doing something that's not well-defined. And, and just to tighten the parallel with this, it's not that one equals two when you divide by zero. It's that when you divide by zero, you can get anything. Because I could rework these equations so that one equals two, one equals three, one equals four, one equals five, one equals six. Yeah. It's the inherent process of dividing by zero that leads to the undefined nature.
0: Yeah.
1: Same thing with subtraction inherently subtracting infinity it's it's undefined you just can't do it you can get anything out of it so the fact that you can get anything says the operation is invalid not that actual infinities don't exist
0: uh, right yeah I would I, I buy that argument okay yeah and well but you know as a scientist I think I'm maybe sympathetic to the idea of, of infinities. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and I don't want to overstate this because, uh, you know, there's lots of things where typically when you're doing physical theories and, the, and infinities pop up, it generally means you've done something wrong or, or you know, it, it, it's not like it's like, okay, we just infinities everywhere. This is great. I still think, you know, we're finite beings. And so we're going to experience some things in finite. The, 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 the place where I take issue with the idea of actual infinites not exist is I think we may be making a statement where we say, because of it behaves weirdly, or we don't entirely understand it, or whatever, we're making a claim of God can't do this. If we say God cannot create something that is spatially infinite, if that's legitimately, logically impossible, fine. If it's something that's just weird, we need to be careful of that. And so that's kind of my interest in in talking about this. And, uh, you know, I mean, bringing it up intentionally to poke at people because I want to kind of have a more robust debate about this because I find, I found this out not too long ago. This actually, the idea of actual infinities not existing dates back to Aristotle. So this isn't a new thing. It's been around a long time. I just had somebody make a fairly coherent argument that infinities existing are kind of crucial to our mathematics working the way we want. And so I just want to be careful about saying, oh, they can't exist. Just because they're odd, unusual, or difficult to understand, so yeah, I don't know. I don't. I'm not, I'm not ready to claim this has great apologetic value to it, but it's certainly a very fascinating discussion for me, and so I want to stoke the fire a little bit and get the discussion yeah. going.
0: Yeah. Well, but you know, th- this concept that that you know, if God is independent of the universe that we live in, and you know, the the universe is spatially and temporally infinite. Mm-hmm. I don't see that that's necessarily contradictory or outside of what I would understand about God's nature and God's character, right? Mm-hmm. God sh- surely outside the universe could create something that is, that is infinite and his eternal nature in a sense makes him infinite in a way, right?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, you gotta be, i I've found that that's a place where we, the terms need to be carefully defined there because right. I know I mean I've listened to Bill Craig and he has a way of explaining that or articulating that where those aren't infinites and I'm, I'm more sympathetic to that they're actual infinites there and so I'm right. fine with that and I just think it's a it's an interesting discussion because it really does weigh into who God is mm-hmm. and you know in, in no place in here there are things even though there are oddities it's like with infinites, you can never make something infinite by adding more things to it. You know, so there's, there's things we know about infinites and finites that we can deal with. I'm not, I'm not negating any of that. I'm just making the claim that you can't say, "Ooh, infinities lead to absurdities; therefore, they can't be actual." Yeah, that was the specific thing I'm working at yeah. here. Because, yeah. and 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 it really does relate to what is it? What is it? What can we know about God? And are we right. limiting what we might know about God by making statements like that? Yeah. So fun stuff. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, hopefully, there will be some comments generated because that'll help yeah. me know where to go and what to talk about. Yeah. And,
0: and, and that's <laughs> a good point. It, you can, because people are welcome to to put comments yeah. in, in underneath the the video and engage the topics. So. Right. And I'm sure there's people out there that are mathematically savvy that yeah. would like to weigh in.
1: Well, and it may take eternity to actually work <laughs> through all this and get it sorted out. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, and speaking of eternity, the next discovery I want to talk about is going to take a while to get through. No. <laughs> all right. So, all done, Jeff? Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let me go ahead and kind of segue into what I want to talk about by bringing up the, the whole idea of innovation, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, uh, there's very good correlations between a capacity for an economy to. Promote innovation and economic growth, right? In, in, and okay. in, in advance of that particular, you know, society, that particular economic system, and so there's a lot of economists that are very interested in what creates an environment in an economy that promotes innovation. Hmm. How can we formulate, you know, economic policies, regulatory policies that stoke the fan, fa- the the flames of of innovation. And I can tell you this, too, that that organizationally people are also very interested in
1: how Mm -hmm. do we
0: create an organization that, uh, again, is innovative. That's something I'm interested in, you know, overseeing reasons to believe. So our leadership team does have discussions about what can we do to uh, promote an innovative environment, because that leads to growth in, in, in not only in size of the organization, but impact of the organization. So innovation is, you know, at everybody's on everybody's mind, one way, shape or form or other. And it's also on, on the mind of biologists uh, because they're very interested in, in, in evolution, in innovation as well. Mm-hmm. And so most biologists hold to an ev- evolutionary view of life. And one of the central questions in biology today is how do we account for biological innovation throughout life's history on Earth? Mm-hmm. And clearly, you know, innovation has happened because <clears throat> when we look at the history of life on Earth, it begins with simple single-celled organisms that are prokaryotic, and then at 2 million years, or sorry, 2 billion years after life appears on Earth, there's a, an innovation that takes place where uh, complex cells or eukaryotic cells appear, and these cells pave the way for multicellular life forms um, and, and these life forms um, you know, are represented by today fungi and, and plants mm-hmm. and, and animals. Uh, but when we talk about multicellularity, there's additional innovation in terms of the production of tissues and
1: mm-hmm. organ
0: sy- organs and organ systems and body plans and body designs. And so the big question is, how do we account for innovation? And so when, when biologists think about, organi- or about organisms, they think about organisms in this way that's shown in this slide, where at the far right-hand side, we have what are called phenotypes, mm-hmm. which is a technical term that just simply means the biological traits and the behavioral traits that an organism displays. Okay. And that's the the the, the, the focus of what, of innovation right? That innovation refers to organisms that have novel physical or biological traits, novel behavioral traits. Now, we also know that the information to build phenotypes is found in the genome. Uh And so there's a, a big question in biology, how does the genotype of an organism relate to its phenotype? What is that relationship? And we know that Uh, the information in the genome of an organism, which is its totality of of genetic information, uh, codes for the production of proteins. Mm -hmm. And, And proteins are workhorse molecules in the cell. They carry out all kinds of operations, form different structures in the cell. And so the greater the proteome, the greater the the collection of proteins that the organism produces, the greater capacity for innovation, right? And so the more protein, different types of proteins you have, the more biological function that you have. And so the the process of cells undergoing differentiation is connected to how the, the different proteins are produced, what proteins are produced, the, the quantities, the levels, and, and mm-hmm. their biological capacities. So we understand...
1: Th- before you go on, it, it, there's, this seems kind of strange language to me. And, uh, you know, it's, okay, so, you know, you talk about innovation, and I see, all right, yeah, there's a utility in innovation. In fact, there's a value in innovation, but it, specifically that it's tied to economic development, which generally right. leads to the well being of people, if you will. Right. So you can see the value there. That in an evolutionary scenario where things are undirected, contingent, just kind of right. almost following the laws of physics, if you will. That doesn't innovation doesn't seem to have a a role there, or a place there. It seems it seems like a a concept that's out of place.
0: Uh, no, it would be very similar to um, innovation enhancing an organization's capacity or leading to economic growth because innovation creates opportunities to take advantage of new environments.
1: Yes, but in that in every the every other situation you're talking about, innovation is somebody doing something new. Right. It's an intentional act. Right. Almost always. Yes. Um, but the contingent nature of the evolutionary process makes innovation a oh. strange term. That was that was my I, point. I see where
0: you're going with that. Yeah, I see where you're going with okay. that. Well, you know, and this is part of really the the darwinian revolution mm-hmm. which is <clears throat> that the design we see in biology isn't the work of a mind but it's the work of a a blind watchmaker okay where where the evolutionary process and the mechanisms of evolution supplant the mind of a creator
1: mm-hmm. and so
0: just as a as human minds can innovate the mechanisms of evolution can can innovate right so it's part of the the darwinian revolution
1: yeah, you're, If you're, I could, that, <clears throat> that sounds a lot like creation. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <go> well, <ahead. laughs> we'll come back to that
0: theme here in a minute. But, so the, but the big point of the, of the slide here is that we don't really know how the, the genome relates to phenotype. We don't know how the proteome really truly relates to phenotype. These are outstanding mm-hmm. questions. But we do know that if you expand the information content in a genome that's going to lead to a greater collection of proteins, right, okay. which provides the framework for innovation. So the whole thrust of how do you account for innovation has to do with how do you change genetic material. Mm-hmm. And we we understand a number of mechanisms that can drive change in genetic material. Well, you know, for example it you know it, uh, changes in gene regulation mm-hmm. and gene regulation refers to what proteins are produced and how much of a protein is produced and by manipulating the the current proteome mm-hmm. you can actually create you know biological variability so if you're regulating the genome in different ways that can create innovation
1: so so the 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 coding section of the DNA, like the 3 to 5% that everybody talks about about being coding, or I may be wrong on the number there, the, that's what determines the protein structure you know, through yes. the amino acids. It's yep, you know, yep. lo- more complicated than that. So the regulatory part, that would presumably be off in the non-coding part is yes. what what the argument is. Okay.
0: Yep, yep. And, and then another mechanism would be gene duplication. So if you can... There are mechanisms by which... For example, during DNA replication, where regions of the genome can just be duplicated. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of an accident. But then if you have multiple copies of a protein, that's going to impact the the structure of the proteome.
1: Right. Okay. And that
0: could lead to innovation or gene loss as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now there's also mechanisms for creating new genes altogether, right? Mutations of a of a of an existing gene Mm -hmm. will alter its protein structure and that could lead to, again, uh, proteins with new capacities that could drive innovation. You could have gene duplication coupled by diversification where one of the copies of the gene are able to undergo mutational Mm -hmm. change. And then finally, this is what we're going to focus on today is the formation of composite genes, right, where Hmm. you can take genes or portions of genes and combine them together together in new ways through, and there's a number of mechanisms that will do this, that now create novel uh, genes. And so the paper I want to talk about is published as a preprint right now by a team from the University of Nottingham in the UK, Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're looking at uh, the, the, the level or the number of composite genes that are found in animal genomes, and really their, their history, what is the mode and the tempo for their formation. Mm-hmm. And as they point out in this paper, that identifying composite genes in genomes through, you know, informatics methods is not an easy thing to do because if it's a composite gene, it's consisting of pieces of two different or three right. different okay. genes, so it ends up, you can't really tell, is this actually a composite gene or you know, is it actually belonging to a different, you know, to a, a different gene group,
1: Gotcha, right? okay.
0: Right, so that, so they, uh, part of the paper is developing techniques to be able to probe, you know, databases of genes and, and fish out those genes that are composite genes. And, and so in order to really appreciate the, I think, the significance of what they've done, just a little bit of background information might be helpful for people, and then we'll plow into the into the discovery. Uh, <clears throat> uh, this is um, uh, showing a a, a, stru- a cartoon of protein structure, because ultimately composite mm-hmm. genes are producing proteins. And so um, when we look at a, the protein structure, I think a lot of people are familiar with it. There's four levels: primary, secondary, tertiary, and quaternary. Primary is just simply the sequence of amino acids and. There are what are called 20 canonical amino acids. These are uh, specified in the genetic code and they have different chemical and physical properties. And so you you can have a near infinite number of sequence combinations Mm -hmm. and presumably the sequence of amino acids impacts the structure and the function of the protein. Mm -hmm. So that's the first level. The second level is called secondary structure where the, the backbone of the protein can adopt different... Conformations and those lead to localized folding patterns that are, are regular that have a regularity to them. And the, and the two most prominent would be alpha helices and beta pleated or yeah, beta pleated sheets. Then tertiary structure refers to really the three-dimensional arrangement of atoms in the protein, but that's achieved by these local areas that have folded, then interacting with each other through space to mm-hmm. create. The three-dimensional structure, and then that folded protein can interact with other folded proteins to produce complexes that are called the quaternary structure. But between the secondary structure and the tertiary structure, there's other levels, hierarchical levels of structure Hmm. that have been identified. We have what are called super-secondary structures. These are, again, localized regions of the the chain where once a secondary structure forms, it can interact with adjacent secondary structures. And there's only specific ways that these interactions can take Mm -hmm. place. So we have a collection of what are called super-secondary structures. These are three examples that are regularly occurring. And then those super-secondary structures can interact to form what are called motifs, right? And and so then it's the collection of motifs that interact in space that produce the three-dimensional structure. So there's this hierarchical level of right. folding that, that, where there are characteristic folds and, and motifs. Now this is showing the three-dimensional structure of a protein and what's interesting is that there are these domains that are shown uh, in, uh, in this diagram and these refer to independent regions of the three-dimensional structure that fold independently and actually have discrete biological functions and so no,
1: okay so so, so so just to so you got the string of amino acids that assume these kind of either helical coils or sheets you know right. for, for simplicity purposes and then you have multiple ways you could put those together. it seems like mm-hmm. there could almost be a near infinite number of ways that could go but there tends to be some tens hundreds thousands of um, ways that tend to dominate that yeah
0: um, there's there's several thousand known protein folds, and okay. folds is kind of a nebulous term that could be in reference to motifs.
1: Gotcha, okay. So kind so there's not a huge, I mean, there's large, but not a huge number of, right. of ways they could do.
0: Right, because... And then,
1: and then in that, given those, even within the whole protein, there's different sections where those play out. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, the, yeah, so these are discrete <clears throat> domains. And so this is showing the relationship between motifs and domains where domains are combinations of motifs. And then those domains are literally physically connected to one another to form larger, gotcha. a larger protein, right? So there, there we go. That's a review okay. of a protein structure. Now this next slide shows a, a diagram illustrating gene structure. <laughs> and this is a simple, this is a, a simplified description of it, but what we need to, Take away from this diagram is that there's two regions. There's basically, there are regulatory regions mm-hmm. that exist upstream and downstream of the coding regions. And the coding region is shown there in the red and the gray alternating right. bars. And the red refers to regions of the coding region that specify amino acid sequences. The gray area are called introns. These are non-coding Okay. Uh, or they don't code for pro- amino acids. And so what happens is when that region of the of the genome is read by the cell's machinery, a copy of the coding region is produced, uh, and then that undergoes a splicing operation where the introns are removed and the exons are joined together. Hmm. That's called a mature RNA that then can be read at the ribosome to produce proteins. But the point is, is that you've got these discrete units in genes that are called exons that, again, code for, pro- for amino acid sequences. Okay. And it turns out there's a very close correlation between exons and domains, okay. right? So for most domains that you see in proteins, they are typically encoded by more or less a single exon. Mm-hmm. Some instances you might have multiple exons, but more or less it's a pretty close correlation. And it turns out that there, through mechanisms like recombination, you can now have what's called exon shuffling,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where the exons in, in a gene can be separated and then recombined with exons from another
1: gene. So exons are a substantial portion of the gene or a smaller portion?
0: Pretty substantial. Pretty proportion. substantial, okay. Yep, yep. So this is showing uh, two genes, gene one and gene two, that undergo recombination and exon shuffling to create these new genes Mm -hmm. that are gonna code for novel proteins. Uh, And so these would be considered composite genes and would be producing composite proteins. You could also- So
1: so is the idea there, so you've got this gene and you've got these different domains, this is the sort of thing where it's taking one domain out of one and effectively putting in another, something like that. Okay. Right, right. And, And
0: then when you look at proteins that have discrete domains, again, there are these collection of domains that are found and usually you'll see combinations of domains
1: okay.
0: that define an individual protein.
1: Right, okay.
0: Right. So, so anyway, so this is what these researchers are interested in is what is the, the, the number of composite genes in a genome and then how do, how do these how do they form in terms mm-hmm. of the mode and tempo? And what they did is they looked at 63... Uh, animal genomes that would be animals that would represent the evolutionary tree of life. This work is all done from an evolutionary context. Mm -hmm. They identified about uh, uh, 1.2, approximately 1.2 million genes that were discrete genes in that set. Uh, Then they surveyed it for composite genes and they They well they surveyed it for what they called homologous groups. These would be essentially families of genes Mm -hmm. that would have similar sequence elements in them. Identified about 300,000 composite or sorry, uh, homologous groups. Okay. And of those homologous groups, they identified about 13,000 composite families.
1: That's about half of it then.
0: No. About, uh, uh, you
1: said 30,000 to 30... Oh, no, you said 300,000 300, to 30,000. So it's so about 5%.
0: About 5%, okay. Roughly 5%. And and then of that, there's about 40,000 composite genes. Okay. So, you know, uh, roughly, you know, somewhere in the the 5 to 10% of a, right. an organism's genome consists of composite genes. Okay. And, and they did some fun things like they... They showed that, for example, the composite genes typically are longer than the component genes or non-composite genes, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Uh, they sh- showed that certain uh, genes are much more amenable to, to functioning as components mm-hmm. for composite genes. So it's okay. not uh, uniformly.
1: Interesting. Yeah. But
0: it's there's certain a certain subset. Uh, they They discovered that. About eighty percent of the component genes disappear from the genomes once they function as composite genes, which makes sense. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right. So that that kind of makes sense, and then they discovered something very interesting. That when they looked at the distribution of these composite genes on an evolutionary tree, they discovered that about thirty-eight percent are monophyletic, and what that means is that they have a single origin, Mm -hmm. and then once they originate. All the organisms that are that are in that group on the tree of life would have that composite gene. Okay. But about 41% are polyphyletic, which means they have independent origins in different locations on those trees. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a, a repeatability to the formation of composite genes, which is actually remarkable. When you think about the mechanisms for composite gene formation, which mm. is just, a you know recombination events where there's an element of randomness to this, right? Okay. So the fact that you're seeing, in multiple independent origins for 41 percent of the composite genes is pretty remarkable.
1: So, so seeing the 40ish percent where there's the mono where it just happens once and everything downstream—that's what you would expect in an evolutionary scenario. You would expect. Expe- oh, that makes perfect sense. yes yeah. The idea that you get this composite gene here and the same composite gene somewhere else in an organism that don't seem to be related. Yeah. That's what's weird or, yeah, or that, unusual. That's
0: what's, that's what's remarkable, okay. which is – and then we'll, we'll talk about something else that's remarkable as well. Then about 20% they couldn't figure out what, what their okay. evolutionary origin would, would have been. Now, then the next thing they did is they took a subset of 11,000 of these genes and they said, okay – let's look at the mode and tempo for their formation. We would expect that they would gradually accumulate in genomes, but instead of what what they saw was that there were bursts of composite Hmm. gene formation, and they always seem to correlate with nodes on evolutionary trees. And nodes would represent places where there's biological innovation that's happening. Hmm. So for example, here's a, a, a very Uh, here's an evolutionary tree for animals, and this is showing very broad groups, okay? And so they noted that one place where they saw a burst of composite gene formation is at the node that corresponds to the origin of bilateria. So bilaterians are organisms that have uh, what's called bilateral symmetry Mm -hmm. in the embryo. So if you take a an imaginary plane, and cut the organism in half, uh-huh. you could do it in such a way that you generate two so- two halves of the organism that are mirror images right. of each other. Most life forms are bilaterians, <clears throat> but this is considered to be, again, a, a major innovation. Mm-hmm. Then the next place they saw it would have been uh, at, uh, let's go to this slide, at a place called um, the origin of the eutalostomies. Th- th- this is a group of of organisms that refer to vertebrates that have a, a bony skeleton. Mm-hmm. So this would include bony fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And then they saw another burst at the origin of eutheria, which is the placental mammals. Okay. So these are just three examples of where they're seeing this these these bursts of composite genes. And um, so
1: it's interesting. So, so the expectation was you would, you just see this kind of periodically happen and be flowing along in there. What they're finding is it all tends to be concentrated around major innovations. I guess it's not clear to me, why would you expect that to just be randomly accumulating? It seems to me that given that that's a source of innovation, you would expect that to happen around, or is the idea that they're accumulating so that there is this place for innovation as opposed to like being introduced and driving the innovation? Yeah, so the,
0: the question would be, you know how long is the fuse right? okay so you would expect in uh, in evolutionary terms that the fuse should be rel- relatively long okay that that over time you're starting to accumulate novel composite mm-hmm. genes that eventually will hit a tipping point gotcha. and okay. that drives innovation whereas what they're seeing is gosh at that point where innovation happens something is creating a burst of production of composite mm-hmm. genes Right, and so even though they're looking at this from an evolutionary perspective, th- the the features that they're describing look a lot like creation. <laughs> they do, yeah. You, you gave a talk <laughs> at, at our Christmas social. It's beginning to look a lot like creation or something like yeah. that. Is that the title? Right, where you're pointing out that even when we are looking at, you know, different aspects of the creation, uh, even in this case from an evolutionary perspective, there seem to be these signals or these mm-hmm. signatures that fit much more comfortably in a creation model framework. So yeah. so the idea that you're seeing the, these bursts of appearance of composite genes that correlate with innovation, to me, is what I would expect this, if there was a creator yeah. that was orchestrating the history of life, that creator is intervening in some way to bring about mm-hmm. this rapid appearance of new types of proteins that would support biological innovation. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that you're seeing, again, such a high level of independent multiple origins of composite genes is, again, a signature for creation. Because the way most people understand evolution is that it's unguided, undirected, and that it's historically contingent, meaning that it's built on a sequence of chance events. Mm -hmm. And that, according to Gould, if you alter one of those events ever so slightly, you're going to end up driving evolution down a, a, a very different pathway. And so his metaphor was that if you could somehow rewind the tape of life and let evolution proceed again, the outcome is going to be different because of the historically contingent nature mm-hmm. of the evolutionary process. Well, the the prediction that flows out of that is you wouldn't expect uh multiple independent origin events yeah. to occur. Or if they did occur, it would be a, a rarity, not you know, a, a significant description of the origin of composite genes. Uh, and so this, again, looks yeah. like creation. It they're, does, they're yeah. reu- reutilizing the same designs over and over again, if they are good designs, is something you would expect an intelligent agent to do. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the features that you see here uh, look a lot like... Look a lot like creation.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's just fascinating. I mean, even if you just say, okay, we're going to take an entirely mechanistic scenario of looking at this, um, you know, you've got whatever this mechanism is that produced the or you know that that produce the I'm drawing a blank on the name. You know, the the multi gene composite the, the composite gene phenomena over here. You got the same sort of composite gene shows up over here. It's almost like something about the like there's something external driving the environment to produce it rather than it being related to the organisms itself. Right, right. Um, because you get the same thing here and here, and the fact that it's all pushed up right when the innovation happens, it does look a lot like there's something driving the process rather than right. it's just meandering along and seeing what can be there.
0: Yes, exactly. So, you know, so to me, we could stop right here and say, look, this looks like... Creation and and that if you were looking at the origin of, in the history of life in evolution, sorry, in from a creation model perspective, these are the kinds of features mm-hmm. that we would expect to see. But oftentimes, when I bring it up, and this is where I'm hoping to have a little bit of fun now, when I bring this, uh, not that we haven't been having fun already, <laughs> but when when I bring up these kinds of arguments to people that are skeptics, uh, oftentimes the rejoinder is, well, that. Interpretation of of creation is illegitimate because there's no way to test it, right?
1: You know, it's it's there's a no way to test it. It's okay. a, it's an
0: untestable idea because as soon as you say God did it, then there's nothing for me to study. I, there's no way for me to, to probe that. Now, I think there's ways to respond to that objection, but one of the projects I've been working on. Uh, and I bring up these ideas in a in a book chapter I wrote for a book that was published in South Africa. Is well, let's just respond to that objection at face value, and and say, okay, fair enough. Then let's we'll play the game by by your rules. We'll uh, we'll respect the framework of methodological naturalism mm-hmm. that you need a mechanism to study, and can we come up with modes of divine action? That would be compatible with God intervening, mm-hmm. but yet in a, in a way that we could study scientifically. yeah. And uh, depending on how much time we have, we we'll can we can talk about both of them, but I'll at least talk about one of them uh, that I suggested. And this is drawing from the work of Hugh Henry and Dan Dyke. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're part of our scholar community. Hugh Henry's a physicist, Dan Dyke's an Old Testament scholar. and they wrote a series of articles for us on our website, that they compiled together into a book that's available on Amazon, by the way, called Hypernaturalism. Mm -hmm. And um, they introduced this concept of hypernaturalism, and their their argument goes something like this, and I'm not going to do it full justice, but they argued, look, God would probably intervene in you know, the universe's history and life's history very rarely in supernatural ways, okay. right? That because, why in, in a, because their argument is like, look, if God is going to create a universe with particular laws of nature, mm-hmm. why would he then violate those laws of nature to bring about his creative purposes? Wouldn't it make more sense for God, once he's created these laws, to work within the context of these laws to bring about his creative purposes.
1: Cuz presumably he's created the laws that will facilitate what he's going to do anyway.
0: Right. So it's it's a it's a reasonable yeah. point, you know. And so they they're not denying the possibility of supernaturalism. They just saying we would expect it to be very rare. Okay. And um and so they argue it doesn't mean that that God is that these events of creation are less miraculous because the just right thing is happening at mm-hmm. the just right time with the just right magnitude, and that what's, what is what constitutes a miracle. And then they go through Scripture and they point out a number of instances where there are clearly divine miracles, but they're happening within the confines of the laws of nature, that they are really mm-hmm. hypernatural in yeah. nature. And now when you think about it, when we as human beings go into a chemistry lab or a physics lab, or we go into a biology lab and we do you know, experiments in genetic engineering or we run chemical reactions to produce chemical compounds or we, you know, use the laws of physics to to Mm -hmm. manipulate matter and energy, we are functioning hypernaturally. We're Mm -hmm. working within the laws of nature, but we are affecting outcomes that wouldn't naturally take place, Mm -hmm. and in the process we're generating novelty of sorts,
1: right? Yeah, they're, they're naturally explained but not naturally driven. Yes, if you will.
0: exactly, which is, you know, your earlier point. And so if we think about things hypernaturally, now let's look at the, this study that we just talked about. We've identified mechanisms, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for how genomes can change, mm-hmm. including the formation of composite genes. So the formation of composite genes isn't violating the laws of nature, it's explained mm-hmm. through, through the laws of nature. But as a as genetic engineers, molecular biologists, genetic engineers, we can actually orchestrate the formation of composite genes in the lab. Mm-hmm. That's not something that's beyond our capability, and we're creating novel genes, mm-hmm. and as through that, the result of that, novel organisms that are, don't exist mm-hmm. currently, right. hypernaturally,
1: yeah. right? Uh,
0: so could it be that God is functioning hypernaturally, that here are the the me- means by which a genome can be modified and that God is intending on innovation. And so at the point where that innovation happens, he's intervening to create all this mm-hmm. protein novelty that's going to support biological novelty, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where the bursts of, of creativity are seen or the, the burst of the appearance mm-hmm. of composite mm-hmm. genes are seen and that this creator is going to reutilize the same designs over and over mm-hmm. again. So, this is a way we could conceive of um, God intervening in in a creation model framework that doesn't really violate
1: the, yeah. the,
0: the framework of methodological naturalism. It gives us something that we can study where methodological naturalism is violated, is that we open up the possibility that there is a mind behind it all, mm-hmm. right? That there's a but but th- in other words, we would be forced to think of the history of life on earth in teleological terms, that there's design, that there's purpose, which is contrary to how many biologists think about life's history.
1: Well, it it does just strike me in there. I mean, you you were talking about, uh, you know, okay, this is where the creator intervenes to introduce uh, new information. I forget how you said it, but it it could entirely be that there are mechanisms that produce that too. It, It seems like that's more a mindset about, how do we go look for stuff, or what questions we ask, rather than can we investigate it? Right. I mean, I could very easily just say, "Well, God introduced a miracle there," and then I could quit looking at it, or I could say, "Okay, yeah, I see God working here. What did He do?" Yeah. Uh, I mean, either I, I'm, I'm, in the first instance, I no longer have any more questions to ask. Right. In the second instance, I have questions asked, but that's not a, that's not a problem that only applies to the supernatural. It applies to the natural as well because there are questions where it's like, yeah, that's just the way it works. And okay, what's going on here? Yeah. It seems like it's, it's not a natural supernatural question. It's a, how do you keep asking questions? Exactly. And, and it plagues, it's an, it can be a problem and a salute and solved in both scenarios. Right. And, and,
0: and this is really where I appreciate uh, the, the genius of Hugh Henry and Dan Dyke mm-hmm. is, you know, that you could conceive of this idea that God is intervening to bring about, you know, the mm-hmm. dramatic burst of, of, of composite gene appearances, right? And then if you just say God is zapping it into existence outside the, the realm yeah. of the universe, that does shut down scientific inquiry. Right, yeah. Or at least it, it's it's easy to understand why a scientist would say that seems like it's shutting down. Yeah. But if you... Say, well, maybe God is intervening hypernaturally, it leaves scientific investigation open.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? So there's two ways you can envision mm-hmm. yeah. God intervening. One of them is amenable to further scientific investigation, or much more amenable. Right now, mm-hmm. there's a
1: well, and, and, and quite honestly, I think the default approach would be assume it's the one that's amenable to a pr- investigation. And the worst that's going to happen is you're going to throw some money at it for a while, and what's like either wow, that's intractable, we don't have the tools, let's put that aside and come back later, which we do in science all the time anyway. So, right, right. Uh, you know it, regardless of which it yeah. is, if you just kind of say hey, we're going to look at it, yeah, you're going to you're going to make. Interesting progress, one way or the other. So,
0: all right. Now, here's a third way, okay. and, and I'll try to do this quickly. Uh, but it also is interesting that when you think about the idea that there is 41 percent of the composite genes are, are have multiple independent origins, it almost is if there is something from the outside that is dictating mm-hmm. the types of composite genes that can form. Right. Right. That there's some kind of constraints, and it's interesting because a few years ago there's a paper published in PNAS where they, are, they they were looking at protein domains. And they uh, noticed that, you know, of all the possible combinations of domains that could exist, there's only about 5% that we actually see in nature. Interesting. And so they argued there must be a set of rules or some kind of constraints, physical mm. chemical constraints, that limit the way domains can interact with okay. each other to form three-dimensional protein structures. And so they actually developed what they called a protein grammar mm. where they treated each domain like a word and, and then, you know, the, the the three-dimensional structure of the protein with multiple domains a like a sentence and using kind of the rules of grammar developed a protein grammar that would predict the types of domains that could combine and mm-hmm. uh, would also identify the types of domains that couldn't combine just like the rules of grammar allow certain word combinations and make other word right, combinations yeah. you know impossible but what they dis- they discovered was essentially physical chemical constraints that dictate domain combinations in mm-hmm. proteins which now provides explanation for why you're seeing this multiple independent mm-hmm. origin of, of, of composite genes, where again, the exons are correlating, roughly speaking, to protein domains.
1: Right.
0: So in other words, there seems to be some kind of law-like behavior that's dictating evolutionary outcome. So in other words, evolution isn't historically contingent mm-hmm. with the origin of composite genes, but maybe deterministic right. where the laws of nature. And, and this leads us to another mode of divine action where we would see God intervening at the very beginnings of the universe where he puts in place mm-hmm. laws of nature that only allow certain outcomes to take place in the history of life, mm-hmm. where all other outcomes are, are are not possible. So in other words... A little the, more
1: front-loading. I mean, you right. could have it where it's like God just... And and this is loose terminology because I think no matter what happening, what right. what's going on, God's involved. Whether it's laws of physics, that's still right. God's activity. But do you it have it's like it kind of starts and God's doing everything along the way right. supernaturally, or does He do it occasionally, kind of the mid-course corrections, or is He front-loading everything? Right. Okay.
0: And, and so that so it's kind of a front-loading where, the, you know, the the out, evolutionary outcomes have been predetermined mm-hmm. and they're pre-sculpted by the constraints of the laws of nature. And this is an idea, it's not a mainstream idea in Mm -hmm. terms of evolution, but it's referred to as structuralism or process structuralism. But two expressions of these ideas are found in these two books uh, by George McGee and Simon Conway Morris. And this is how Simon Conway Morris describes it, where he says, it's now widely thought that the history of life is a little more than a contingent muddle punctuated by disastrous mass extinctions, and spelling doom for one group so open the doors of accidents of history so this is mm-hmm. again how most people see evolutionary processes contingent
1: random process occasionally things get wiped right. out and new stuff just happens right. because
0: and so but then he argues but yet what we know of evolution suggests the exact reverse convergence is ubiquitous and so mm-hmm. what we're describing with the the you know independent origin multiple times of composite genes right. is and it, is convergence, is yeah. convergence Uh, is ubiquitous in the constraints of life make the emergence of various biological properties probable, if not inevitable. In other words, things have been rigged from the Mm get-go to to only have certain outcomes. And that now gives the process a design and purpose, which suggests there's a mind behind it. So this is not... um, your grandfather's theistic evolution, mm-hmm. right? Where God is just working through the evolutionary process. Yes, there are they are describing God working through the an mm-hmm. evolutionary process, but He's He's rigged it in such a way that it, it, it very clearly is going towards desired outcomes. And this is not something that's mysterious to us, where God is working at the level of quantum indeterminacy in a way that yeah. we can't mm-hmm. you, conceive it. But rather, God is working in a way that's very apparent
1: right, to yeah. all of us, right? Well, that, that sounds akin to, you know, I look at, at our universe, and if you're going to have life, you got to have something like carbon, you got to have something like water. You look at the periodic table, and carbon and water are not the two things that stand out to you, but it seems like the universe is rigged to produce carbon and oxygen and hydrogen.
0: And it's producing it through a a type of stellar evolution, right?
1: Yeah, a, a somewhat random process, if you will. I mean, you know, it, it's it's. I mean, you can make an argument: the universe is rigged to produce what life requires. It, but yet it's still very understandable at the same time.
0: Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it, that's essentially what Simon Conway Morris mm-hmm. is arguing: It's a type of biological anthropic principle, right? Where it's kind of rigged from the get-go, gotcha. right, to to certain outcomes. And so, you know, he basically is saying. That what guides evolution is essentially physical forces, mm-hmm. not natural selection. So, natural selection ah. becomes a minor player in this. It's the laws of physics that are dictating evolutionary outcomes.
1: Interesting. So, yeah. so this
0: is really a, a radical idea where, again, they talk about this idea of forms, you know, that there are these biological forms that are predetermined at the very get go. And we could extend that to, protein forms or to, um, you know, to composite genes, that type of thing. Uh, and that again, it's essentially things that have been predetermined and pre-sculpted.
1: Have you so- ever, you ever played the, the you know, game, I think it's called Plinko. It's like you basically flip no. a ball up and it rattles down through a whole bunch of pins right. and it ends up in one of the slots down at the bottom. Yeah. It kind of remind your, your description yes. reminds me of this. It's like you can spend all your time studying the pins but ultimately, it's gravity, and who set up the pin, who set up the buckets at the end? That's going to drive. Yes. If you really want to understand what's going on, understand gravity and the buckets at the bottom.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good analogy, Jeff. Because the way I describe the three options that are on the table is, let's say we're out in a valley and there, there's a hole that we've dug that perfectly fits a red ball, mm-hmm. and so we put one model is God doing it supernaturally? We put the ball there. Mm-hmm it's where we want it. The other one would be a hypernaturalism where you you're dropping the ball at the top of the mm-hmm. of the hill and you're letting it roll down but occasionally you kind of dig a divot here or <laughs> dig a divot there to kind of direct the movement of the ball right. so that it winds up where you want it. Mm-hmm. The third option, the the anthropic principle, it doesn't matter where you drop the ball because the landscape of the of the mountainside mm-hmm. leading to the bottom of the valley is is such that no matter what, where you drop it, it's going to take a path that may be different every time, but it's always going to wind right, up in yeah. the same spot. So in all three instances, the system is designed, yeah. the outcome is designed, uh, Whether, but it's just a question of what is right. the, m- the mode of my action, right? And so yeah. we're really talking about modes of divine action, but what's interesting to me is that when you see studies like this, not only does the 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 burst of composite genes and the, mm-hmm. the reproducibility make it look a lot like creation, is even when you try to think about it in evolutionary terms, it still looks a lot like <laughs> <The> creation. creation. <laughs> right? It does, yeah. Right. So we're where now, the evolutionary process simply melds into a, an option as a mode of divine action right. as opposed to a mechanism that is contrary to divine action. Right.
1: I think it's a pretty profound point. It's yeah. been a fun discussion.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for, <laughs> for uh, laboring with me for a near-infinite amount of time as we
1: go through this. Well, uh, we've had a near-infinite amount of fun, so yeah. it's been easy. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Star, Cells, and God. I would love to hear your thoughts in the comment section below. And remember to not only like this video and subscribe to our YouTube channel and set the notification for this video, our YouTube channel, again, is Reasons to Believe, but also uh, share this with your friends who you think might be interested in this whole discussion about infinities and composite genes. And then also, remember, you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. Go to our website, reasons.org. And again, until next time, remember, the more you know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.